Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's behind the many legends about giants in human folklore? Who or what were the Nephilim? What exactly constitutes a giant? Hello and welcome to the 620th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben and those larger than life questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this afternoon, we welcome a guest on a subject we've never really covered before, and that is giants. As always, uh, we welcome your calls. The numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor emails. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Jason Jarrell has been studying prehistoric civilizations and legends of ancient giants for 17 years. During the last six years, Jason and his wife Sarah have investigated the Adena culture of North America, otherwise known as the Mound Builders. Over the course of their research, they have gained access to manuscripts from the vaults of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, detailing the discovery of gigantic skeletons during the 19th century field investigations of the Eastern Mound Division. Their work also involves lost or forgotten archaeological sites in Ohio, Kentucky, and the Kanawha Valley of West Virginia. That's where Point Pleasant is, the Mothman thing. Ah, yes. Their published work includes articles in Ancient American Magazine. They have a book set to appear this year, as I understand it. We'll have uh, Jason tell us about that later on. Uh, Jason and Sarah's website, uh, AlleghenyMounds.com. For you non-Pennsylvanians, that's A-L-L-E-G-H-E-N-Y, Mounds.com. So, Jason Jarrell, welcome to, be- uh, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's great to have you. So, Jason, can you give us a basic history of giant legends, and what are the oldest ones? <clears throat> well, the giant legends are as old as humanity itself. The earliest texts and religious traditions of mankind describe stories of giants. Um, So we know that throughout human history there's been an interest in gigantic human beings. And what's very interesting to me is that in most cultures, these beings, are connected with literature which is supposed to be considered historic. And a a great example of that would be the ancient Sumerian stories with the giants that were supposedly created through the interactions of the Apkalu with the elite following the deluge. So the giants... And the stories of the giants are as old as humanity itself. Hmm. So in folklore, there is always some sort of grain of truth that starts a legend, and this we know. So how much truth is there in at least some of these giant legends? The, well, the, the legends are true because these beings, or beings similar to them, have been found throughout the world. And depending on which era you lived, you may or may not have been privy to this information because the policy of denial really wasn't implemented until the early 1900s. Before then, these discoveries were published in history books and even in the published reports of the Smithsonian Institution itself. 
So what physical evidence is there for the existence of giants? Well, in the United States, uh, just after the after the, the Revolutionary War, the colonists began to develop the land and they began to open the prehistoric tombs, uh, particularly those in the Ohio River Valley. And as they began to explore the burial mounds and the caves and the subsurface graves throughout the region, they began to uncover the physical remains of beings that were between seven and nine feet tall. Uh, usually the description mentions that the skulls were very thick and that the jawbones were extremely large. The people in the 1800s used to pull the jawbones out of these tombs and put them over their faces like masks. And what occurred was the Smithsonian's Eastern Mound Division in the 1880s launched a series of investigations of the burial mounds in North America with the express purpose of coming up with an identity for who these people were. So there was a political goal behind the Smithsonian's excavations right away. Because the public was interested in this ancient civilization, which which had these gigantic beings among them. And it was then that the Smithsonian itself began to excavate the gigantic skeletons. And I can give you an example of one such discovery here where we live in Charleston. And it's a great example because it also describes the types of tombs these people were found in. Now, that's Charleston, West Virginia, right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Here in Charleston, there was a mound known as the Great Smith Mound, and it was 35 feet high at the time of excavation. And this mound was actually built in three stages. We don't know how old it was because there were repeated instances of building which could have spanned hundreds or even thousands of years. And within this mound, the excavating agents of the Smithsonian found a large log cabin-like structure. It was 12 by 13 feet broad, 6 feet high, and reaching 10 feet at the ridge top, and at the center of this vault in the remains of a bark coffin was discovered a gigantic human skeleton, 7 foot 6 inches in length and 19 inches between the shoulders. Now in the manuscript of the excavating agent of the Smithsonian, whose name was Colonel Norris, in his handwritten manuscript he repeatedly refers to this being as the gigantic human skeleton and the giant, and apparently the body had been wrapped in skins and encased in a type of clay, possibly for preservation. Now, an additional skeleton inside this log cabin structure was described as very large, and there were retainer burials, probably sacrifices, placed at the corner of the structure. In the upper 15 feet of this mound, a person described as another personage of note was found with cranial deformation described by Norris as of the Peruvian type. So these are the notes of an agent of the Smithsonian in his own handwriting describing uh, the discovery of one of 
literally hundreds of beings that were very similar in North America. Hmm. Okay, now, uh, Jason, before we move on, um, I wanted to give the uh, some background to the listeners here who may not be aware that, you know, most people who look back at American <clears throat> prehistory will think of maybe the Vikings, but everyone will think of, of Native Americans and, you know, living in uh, wigwams or, or the, the kind of stuff you see in the grammar school textbooks. Uh, a lot of people don't know about the mound builders and uh, that there uh-huh. were... Uh, it was several great civilizations that really were not just hunter-gatherers. So could you just give a little bit of background for a second on the mound builders and the, the cultures that these burial mounds came from that people may not know about? Oh, sure, that's an excellent point. Uh, the educational system has ensured that most Americans are completely illiterate as to the prehistoric civilizations which existed here. Uh, the culture from which most of the gigantic skeletons were found is the Adena mound building culture. Now the Adena, they constructed their burial mounds and earthworks throughout Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and even in Indiana and perhaps in Illinois. The Adena they constructed not only burial mounds, but large ceremonial enclosures, usually of a circular shape, but they also built square-shaped enclosures. And these enclosures were comprised of usually outer walls of earth with interior ditches and typically a single entryway aligned to a lunar or solar event. And what's very interesting about these enclosures is that a large number of them are comparable to Class One hinges in Atlantic Europe, as are found in Cornwall and Ireland. And the Athena had an extensive network of chiefly lineages, which probably intermarried among one another to preserve their genetics and power for hundreds of years. Hmm. Okay. Now, the Typical dating of the mainstream is based on very outmoded taxonomies from the 1960s. So the mainstream sources typically give you a date of no later than about 500 B.C. for the Adena, but their pottery and artifacts have been found in Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia dating back to 1600 B.C., 1900 B.C., and even 2400 B.C., and they've been connected by most of the major Adena scholars in the 20th century to late archaic civilizations who they believed were their ancestors, but in fact were probably contemporaneous with the early Adena phase. So this was a very sophisticated civilization with a hierarchy and an exchange network and economic system. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Jason. One question that arises in my mind, uh, Jason, uh, even though legends probably start with a grain of truth, as, as Ben said, and they certainly do, uh, they always pick up baggage over the centuries. It would be unusual for them not to. We know that on average, most, most ancient, but not all, most ancient people were shorter than modern people by anywhere from a few inches to a foot or more. Uh, is it right. possible that on the rare 
that the rare person of seven feet or more, uh, you mentioned the, the remains of one, uh, would stand out to the point of becoming a legend, like Goliath in the Bible or Cahulan from Irish folklore, the great warrior, in which case they wouldn't be from their own race at all. They'd just be sort of one of us who, you know, uh, stood out. I mean, what say you? Right. Okay. Well, that's an excellent question, too. And Dr. Greg Little has actually done... Dr. Greg really Little, I like that. See what he did there, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I love puns. Uh, well, the, Greg Little has done some excellent research on on the front of determining whether these were just really tall people who just happened to be found by the early colonists and the Smithsonian. And, in fact, uh, just to give you an example, the 5th and 12th annual reports of the Bureau of Ethnology have no less than 17 skeletons between seven and eight feet tall documented and those reports detail the excavation of around 800 burials in order for you know these to just be really tall people or basketball players the smithsonian yeah. would have had to have excavated 2.5 million skeletons yeah well, i see in your order point. to find now the amazing thing about the adena giants and and Actually, this is what really started our research, was even after the policy of denial was instituted in the early 1900s, in the mid-20th century, mainstream archaeologists rediscovered the giants and acknowledged them on record, and this is very little known. Now, one of those people was William S. Webb of the University of Kentucky. Now, William S. Webb is the premier scholar of the Adena culture, most of what we know about the Adena comes from his many excavations and publications. And Webb was working primarily in Kentucky, and he worked with a physical anthropologist named Charles Snow to try to recreate the anthropology of the Adena people. And when he excavated the Dover Mound in Kentucky, William S. Webb discovered a burial that was seven feet in length, and many of the other skeletons in the mound were over six feet tall. And he went on record and and actually published the data regarding this very large skeleton. And he wrote about the Adena anthropology, describing these large individuals as having high vaulted crania, very large jawbones with bilateral protrusions and bony wide chins, and he also wrote extensively about the thickness of the bone. So essentially, these types of discoveries corroborated the earlier accounts of the settlers. And the next major Adena scholar to go on record writing about the giants was Don Dragu of the Carnegie Museum. And in 1963, Dragu published Mounds for the Dead, which was his analysis of the Adena culture. And in Mounds for the Dead, Dragoo not only published photographs of a gigantic skeleton in the tomb, but he also wrote about the anthropology of the giants, and Dragoo concluded that they were an elite group within the Adena population who, through targeted breeding, had passed down their unique anthropology for hundreds of years. Hmm. So... Those are at least two instances when mainstream archaeologists uh, 
actually went on record acknowledging the existence of these unique beings. Okay. Yeah, we're getting into a fascinating area here, but before I ask a question about that, I know Ben has questions too. There's an inevitable suggestion, I would think, from anyone who has a nodding acquaintance with paranormal work, especially when it comes to cryptids, that uh, ancient encounters... Ancient encounters with things <clears throat> somehow have a way of being embedded in human folklore, memory, race memory, this sort of thing. And I'm wondering if ancient human encounters with Bigfoot, uh, <clears throat> if there is such a creature, and there's plenty of evidence that there is of one kind or another, or race memories of uh, uh, the, the Gigantopithecus, a large human a human predecessor, that sort of thing, uh, in the DNA chain, uh, it might be responsible for some legends, at least, you know, aside from the physical evidence you've described, uh, some legends of, of giants in, in human folklore, you know, beyond the fee-fi-fo-fum kind of thing. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Um, could some of this be race memory of extinct um, human or proto-human species? Well, that's, um, you know... I'm sure that some element of that influences our thinking regarding these concepts because we know that genetically the human race does not forget. Mm. Um, going with the Jungian concept of the collective unconscious, my interpretation is that the giants strike such a powerful chord with people all over the world because they are part of our genetic memory of our ancestors all had extensive interactions with these beings. In fact, it's, it's our belief that following the collapse of a world system at around 3100 B.C., these individuals may have assumed authoritative roles among all of the early peoples of the Western world. So certainly there is a, a subconscious or perhaps genetic memory which influences our response to these types of accounts. I think that's, that's a, an excellent way to put it. And I should, you know, for, for those who may be skeptical listening, I know Ben wants to get a question in here, but the, there is something we've pointed out on the show several times here that things Jason may be talking about uh, from prehistory, ancient, you know, civilizations we don't know anything about, this is very, very plausible and it is being looked at by a number of recognized experts, you have to realize that there is at least a million years of human history we know nothing about. All sorts of empty time in which a thousand civilizations we know nothing about could have risen and fallen. So I think Jason has, has a point here about um, all sorts of, of things that may have occurred, genetic mutations of various kinds, and indeed what we would refer to as giants. That's just my two cents. So, Ben, go ahead. No, that, that totally makes sense because the more, the more I'm, I'm thinking about it with the, with the uh, ancestral memory kind of thing. I mean, it's like the wars of the giants that are talked about. The wars in, of uh, the gods or giants. No, I was, talking, I, was, I was referring to Norse mythology. Oh, Norse mythology. With the, yeah. with the wars of the giants because the humans were always at war with the giants or whatever. So if, if indeed... Giants didn't. It did take like a a role as being leaders or whatever. Anyway, so my question was going to lead to an area where is there any other place in the world where there is there have been skeletons found like besides North America, like any any other continent where these these similar sort of beings have been found? Absolutely, 
Um, when we began our investigation several years now, um, the reason that it took so long for us to publish anything was that we wanted to get to the bottom of the mystery of where these beings came from. And in order to do that, we charted the cultures that they belong to because when you read about these giants being found all over North America, it's important to remember that these people were part of a culture. If you can identify the culture, then you may get close to their origin. Now, in order to do that, we traced the concept of raising a conical mound over the dead in subsurface tombs, as the Adena did, throughout the world. And what we found was that in regions where this practice was most prevalent, you also find the most gigantic physical remains. Hmm. Uh, I can give you a great example that was put together by a friend of mine, Mika Ewers. In France, in 1889, an anthropologist named Vacher de la Pauge excavated a burial mound, and this is in southeastern France. And this mound, like the Great Smith Mound that I mentioned earlier from Charleston, had been used for hundreds of years. It had been used in the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and even in the Neolithic period. So there was a certain level of stratigraphy, an ancestral connection in this mound that spanned perhaps thousands of years. And in the Neolithic strata, the oldest strata of the mound, Lafauge discovered the bones of a giant 11 foot 6 inches tall. Hmm. Now, these bones were sent back to the University of Montpellier in France, and for years, Lafauge's contemporaries reviewed and studied bones attempting to debunk that this was a human skeleton, and none of them ever could. Even the Boston Journal of Anthropology attempted to debunk this skeleton, and everyone concluded that this was a gigantic humanoid. Now, if you go even further, further back in time, and you go into the Caucasus Mountains, where one of the earliest tumulus cultures on Earth, known as the Yamnaya culture, the Yamnaya culture, they raised what are called Kurgan mounds over their elite dead, and buried their dead in subsurface tombs, and many of the reports of excavations of the skeletons of the Yamnaya culture detail that they are colossal. And what's very interesting about that is even though the archaeologists to this very day will use terms like colossal or gigantic to describe these skeletons, when that word appears, they do not provide specific measurements. Okay. We're going to take our break. No, uh, go ahead. Well, just to answer your question, these beings are found all over the world. They've been found in Ireland, Britain. They've been found in North Africa. They've been found in Iran, Syria, and according to some sources, Mesopotamia. So, yes, they've been found everywhere. Okay. Well, uh, Jason, that's fascinating. We're going to come back with some more questions after our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our guest Jason Durrell on our subject of giants in just a moment.
W-O-O-N, Woonsocket. Wojak at three from the corner. No rebound. Kane Broom lays it up and in with 2.3 seconds left. It does not matter. Starks with the inbounds, and Bryant survives. They have won their quarterfinal game in the NEC tournament. The first ever postseason win in the history of Division One for this... Okay, well, that was a break, all right. Uh, we accidentally went to the Bryant University basketball game. <laughs> we will uh, never a dull uh, moment, folks. Never a dull moment. No. Anyway, uh, we were we usually do a show promo, but we will uh, refer to our charities we've adopted uh, at the end of the show in our announcement period. But in the meantime, we better get back to our conversation with Jason Jarrell before something else happens. So, uh, <clears throat> Jason, uh, why don't you take this moment because we're burning up this hour very quickly to tell us about your website? And I understand you have a book coming out and uh, where people can find out more about you. Uh, yes, I'm on Facebook and our website is called AlleghenyMounds.com. The website is a work in progress. We are constantly updating it with new information and as our articles are published, through various outlets such as Ancient Origins Online, AP Magazine, and Ancient American Magazine. We also upload those to our website. And we're working on a book that we're hoping to have out very soon. And this book is a collaboration between ourselves and Marcia K. Moore, who's an amazing artist that's done extensive work with the Paracas Skulls of Peru. And in the book, we are going to cover about 7,000 years of history to chart the existence of these beings around the world and into the distant past. And Marcia is working with actual photographs of crania and skeletal measurements to recreate the living image of these beings from around the world to be featured in the book. Very good. Well, keep us posted on that. We'll... we'll uh... You know, we'll have you back on when it's coming out. Uh, let me give our numbers again. <clears throat> it is uh, 800-449-1240, anywhere in the U.S. or Canada or locally, here in uh, southeastern New England, 401, <coughs> excuse me, 401-766-1240. Okay, let's get back to our conversation. Now, Now, Jason, uh, leading into some of the origins of, of uh, the giants we've been talking about or uh, extremely large people, whatever you want to call them. Uh, people who know anything about the book of Genesis will see reference to the Nephilim, okay, which is a he- Jew, uh, Hebrew word, plural, that is very, it's it, the only word more mysterious than that that I've ever found in Genesis in Hebrew is, is Elohim, which is the first word used for God in the Bible, and it's a, it, it literally, it's a plural word that translates the shining ones. You no, know, so go figure. But what, what is the, what are the, were the Nephilim, and what's your take on that whole Nephilim situation? Well, we like to consider archaeological data to be raw, and to allow people, if, if you're approaching this from a spiritual perspective, we like to present the data and let people form their own conclusions. Sure, as do we. But, yeah. but one thing that I can offer with regards to the Nephilim is that the Mesopotamian version of the Nephilim, uh, the watchers who fathered the giants in the book of Enoch, these are the equivalent of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. Mm-hmm. The Mesopotamian equivalent were known as Apkalu. 
and the Apkalu formed an alliance in the Mesopotamian sources with the pre-flood kings, and then after the flood, they bred the Noah's flood. Royalty. Yeah, right. Which is reported not just in Genesis, but in contemporary documents uh, such as the Karsag epics, things of that kind, right? Correct, correct. So we we have a corroborating instance from the Mesopotamian uh, dynastic mythology of these beings that were from elsewhere breeding with elite human lineages. And it's very interesting. You mentioned ancient civilizations earlier that we know nothing about. Well, there is a growing realization in archaeology from Europe today that during the period of about 4,000 to 3,200 B.C., a massive civilization grew from out of Mesopotamia and reached as far as the uh, Caucasus Mountains and Spain. And this is known as the Uruk Expansion. That's right. Now, this, is, this is probably the civilization mentioned in the biblical text in the story of the Tower of Babel. And what fascinates me about this civilization is that in prehistory, the Yamnaka culture, which I mentioned earlier from the Caucasus Mountains, is now being identified as a colony of forwarding agents from that period of Mesopotamia. So in all likelihood... Eventually, if the data is interpreted properly, people will come to an awareness that this legend that exists in so many cultures of a global civilization was, in fact, real. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Now, now, with that as a background, Jason, uh, the question that I have next for you is what DNA testing, if any, has been done on the organic artifacts, the skeletons, things of this kind, that were recovered at times you've described? Or has there been any? Well, a lot of people believe that the giants were taken uh, unanimously by the Smithsonian and that they've been hidden away by the Smithsonian Institution. That is not our conclusion. If you look at the reports of the giants that are routinely republished in various books and publications, if you actually study those reports closely, you'll see the name Carnegie appear far more often than the Smithsonian. Hmm. After 1896, the Carnegie Institute essentially took over the excavation of a Dina mound um, in the Ohio Valley. And we know of at least two instances, one with the McKees Rocks Mound in Pennsylvania and one with the Cresap Mound in West Virginia, when Carnegie did secure intact gigantic skeletons. Now, the philanthropies are the ones who today possess the bones of gigantic individuals. So um, charitable foundations, such as... The elite institutions that were founded by families such as the Carnegie Andrew family Carnegie, and yeah, the Rockefeller yeah. family, okay. which had archaeological divisions. Yeah. Now, as far as DNA tests, you'll find every few years that the establishment releases information claiming that they've done DNA tests, proving that the mound builders were simply the, the ancestors of the Native Americans and that there's really nothing to see here. But if you pay close attention, 
those DNA tests are always done on the remains of the Hopewell and Mississippian cultures, and these cultures came later than the Adena. So there seems to be a bias against honestly testing and publishing um, the genetic information regarding the Adena. Why? Well, it's important to remember that According to Don Dragu, the individuals that we're talking about today represented chiefly and elite lineages. Not all the population were gigantic individuals. So it would be very easy to do DNA tests on prehistoric people from mound-building cultures in North America and avoid testing the remains that you and I would be interested in. And we think that that's probably the case. If there was a subpopulation of individuals who were this large and this distinct for such a long period of time, I would expect to find something very unique in that DNA. Hmm. One wonders uh, <clears throat> about the secrecy, seeming secrecy surrounding so many areas of the paranormal. We, we run into it all the time. Lately, we tend to run into uh, the military when it comes to flap areas, as we call them. So uh, maybe this is another piece of the puzzle, I suppose. Uh, in order to avoid testing certain specimens or in order to, uh, have what I suppose, might amount to a cover-up, I mean, the question remains, I mean, what are they afraid of? I mean, we, were, we run into things that are secret that it just seems, seems, seems to be ridiculous. I mean, you know, what possible harm could it do? Because we don't know. So do you have any speculation further on that subject, What um, what might be... Uh, the ultimate agenda yes. here? Yes. The, in America, archaeology is kind of a self-perpetuating uh, box for the mind because in 1879, uh, J.W. Powell, who was the head of the Bureau of Ethnology at the Smithsonian, which oversaw the excavation of these burial mounds, this was the authority in the situation, in 1879, J.W. Powell distributed a paper throughout the Smithsonian that was given to all the Bureau agents before they went into the field. This is before any field work was actually conducted. And in this paper, he specifically states that the field agents are not to find any evidence of extralimital origins for American civilization. And if they do, it's to be discarded. In other words, Powell was instructing his agents not to find any evidence that anyone reached this country before Columbus. And so during the century or more that's passed, archaeology in the United States has had to operate within those parameters because it became a dogma under Charles Doolittle Walcott, the fourth secretary of the Smithsonian, who got it inserted into the university circuit. So if, for example, you did DNA testing on a particular skeleton from a burial mound, and that skeleton had genetic traces of Indo-European DNA from the Bronze or Iron Age, you would probably be discouraged from publishing those findings because this is an academic dogma in the United States. Now, beyond that, it's also possible that in the prehistoric remains of North America, 
the establishment could have found something that they don't want the public to understand, and that could be technology or any number of things. Well, that that um, makes sense. I mean, and it fits with much that we have found, much to my surprise over the years, that there is that there there are some approaches to science that make it virtually a religion with its own dogmas and. You know, don't bother me with facts. My mind's made up sort of thing. I, just, I don't understand the purpose of that. I mean, what difference does it make? Like, I mean, if anything, you'd want to learn more about where you came from to find where you're going. I, I just – I don't understand. Well, I understand Jason's does. point about the the um, rigor of, of the political and even racial dogmas of the 19th century. I mean, yeah, that's true. So I think your question, if I may, might want to come forward to the 21st century. That's when true. It's, it is most unfair. of these things don't make any difference anymore to most people. So, you know, what, why would they persist? Unless, unless what, what could be revealed is so outlandish, so, you know, that, that you know, and one thinks of, and this comes up on the show, and I'll bring Jason, you comment on this if you want, the notion of alien genetics or dna but but then again how alien could it be if they were it was interbreeding if that legend is accurate jason says it is i think we overestimate or underestimate the amount of apathy people have nowadays perhaps because if if, if it did indeed come out that it let's 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 say the adina uh the dna has been tested and they find genes that don't don't exist in any other part of the world then okay. so the ultimate conclusion would be well they came from elsewhere people probably more than likely, people wouldn't care. Well, there are already 223 genes in the human genome anyway that, that have no precursor from an evolutionary standpoint for life on from life on Earth at all. Nobody knows what exactly. they didn't hush that up. No, exactly. Nobody and talks it, it, about it. No, not at all. But Those, it's there. It's there. Yeah, the information is there. It's yeah, out it's there. Well but, no, but nobody, sure. nobody seems to care. Yeah, we're leaving. Thing. We're leaving our guest out of the conversation. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, so, Jay, Jason, what say you about all this? Well, remember that when these policies were were enacted originally, people did care. Yeah. And the the other thing is, you're living at a point right now where people like yourselves even are laying the foundations for an awakening. Now, a lot of the work that people like us do, it's not for now; it's for the future. We're trying to find information that's either suppressed or forgotten, so that a time may come when a generation more enlightened than ourselves can apply that to reality. And the powers that be that run the United States have always viewed things in terms of segments of hundreds of years rather than just what's valid for today. And aside from that, if there were, for example, and and this is just me throwing something out there, if in the deep past there was a global civilization, or maybe even multiple global civilizations, and they failed for various reasons, there are numerous political reasons to keep that out of the historical record. Because today we have this concept of globalization and, and progressivism where we're being told that this is the way of the future. But had this occurred in the past, the catastrophic result, it would be a valuable political move to oppress that knowledge. I suppose that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I never. Well, thought you know, and that. there is there is every evidence of uh, certainly of of global trade in pr- so-called prehistoric times. Yeah, yeah. there there is ev- if the artifacts prove it. There there is evidence of um, 
just what Jason said, I think, that they were a global civilization, global communications. As a matter of fact, there's evidence, and Stanton Friedman would agree with us and has agreed with us on the show, the great uh, UFO, uh, the, the phys- a physicist who was a uh, great uh, UFO expert, uh, has said that <clears throat> there is every evidence that there, um, and ancient cultures, uh, I should say the Native American cultures agree with us too, that there may have been as many as four times when we have gone from stone tools to power tools, as it were, and there has been some cataclysm, man-made or otherwise, that has reduced us, put us back to the to the, the stone tools. I mean, is, is, have you found that sort of thing as well in your research on this subject, Jason? Well, what I can tell you is that with the if we begin with the Uruk period of Mesopotamia, it appears that there were at least three attempts at globalization that failed catastrophically, hmm. and the one of those was probably underway at the time that the Romans went to war with the Indo-European people known as the Celts. Yeah. Now, the Romans, in their war with the Celts, encountered multiple tribes of giants and took them prisoner, and many of them were then bred intentionally to provide bodyguards for the Caesars. Uh, That's true. Oh, the Praetorian Guard. The Celts were a mound-building culture who were the descendants of the Bronze Age people whose earthworks are so similar to those in North America. So we do believe that these globalizations occurred, and the archaeological record actually suggests that. The issue is we have this thing today called science that's supposed to work on our behalf, but it's being used like the ancient oracles of Greece, and the priests are telling it what to say. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds paranoid, but uh, it makes sense. Let me ask you this, because we're running out of time, Jason. Uh, we, we think of the, the bloodlines, and we, we mentioned that uh, people today tend to be taller, and, and, and you know, you look at our nutrition, because supposedly because of our nutrition, and all I can think of is that line from Yoda, Ben, how you uh, get, so get so big eating food of this kind. Yep. You know, I mean, we, uh, most of the food is terrible, <laughs> and... Uh, do you think that it's possible that that the DNA, uh, I should say, or, or the, the 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 genes of the these giant individuals or or group has come down to us um, in a rather liberal manner, so to speak, that we all kind of share that now, or or where where did the the bloodlines go? Well, there's two answers to that question. First of all, these people originated among the Indo-European races. So, of course, we are related to them, Mm. but their elite bloodlines tended to keep the lineages in the family. Whatever the origin, if there's a supernatural origin or a scientific explanation, we do know that targeted breeding was practiced all over the Western world. But I would bring this point up, and this is going to be a major part of our book, The elite of today are all interrelated. I'm not sure if you guys have seen the studies, but even all the presidents of the United States have been interrelated. Now, if you go further back in time, you'll find that most of them come down to us from the Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties. Well, we do. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. But again, you know, the, the thing with human genetics, you know, and, and funny, uh, Ben's mom and I last night were watching, uh, what was, what's the, uh, uh, I can't remember the name. The, the. Explain the plot or who's in it. Well, it's a, based on Lincoln, Lincoln and Piaget's book, The, uh, Bloodline of Christ and all the. Oh, oh, oh uh. You're the, more senile than the, I am. Da Vinci Code? Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, I take back, I take it back. And uh, the whole idea that this one French cop could be the sole descendant of Jesus Christ is 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 ridiculously unlikely because j- lines spread. Everyone alive today of Western European descent is is descended from just about everyone alive two thousand years ago. You know, so I mean, this is what I'm saying that that even if you have a contained bloodline, which is really not possible. Um, so this may be the first thing you've said that I may, might have a little bit of a take a little bit of exception to Jason as far as contained blood, or is that what you, is that what you're saying? I mean, are you saying that? Uh, no, I was the the point I was going to make is um, if you go back through European history, roughly 1,500 years, you'll find that uh, most of the feudal houses and the early earlier rulers in Europe actually descended from mound building cultures. Okay. Uh, I'd have to look so, into that, but I'll take your word for it for now, yeah. Right. If, for example, the Merovingians that you've seen all those books about the bloodline of Jesus and everything else, the Merovingians were practicing burial in mounds and artificial cranial deformation all the way up to the 6th century A.D. Well, the Merovingians, just to clarify, we're talking about the kings of France, uh, what about like 500 AD, 800 AD? No, it was before that. About 500 AD, right? About that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah. they they had a lot of odd customs, such as that they were not allowed to cut their hair, and they were considered more or less god, not god kings, but 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 uh, priest kings, I should say, that sort of thing. So that's just the background of that. Go ahead, Jason. Well, yes, the the Merovingians were descended from the Franks. Uh, right. who invaded that region of Gaul and took it from the Romans in the earlier centuries. And they themselves were probably interrelated with the Celts. Mm-hmm. So there's a long history of these cultures. And the point I'm trying to illustrate is we're taught to think that prehistory is something that's separated from us today by some type of deep veil. But sure. in fact, we're still living in the legacy of these things that happened thousands of years ago. Yes. Yeah, we are. We are. Okay. All right. That's um. Uh, did you have another question, Ben? Because I'm I'm fast. No, we're, we're we're running out of time. Okay. Well, Jason, thank you for being with us, and we're glad you're feeling better. And uh, it's one of the more fascinating conversations I've had recently. And uh, tell us again about your website and uh, where people can find out some more. And, and your book that's going to be coming out. Yeah. Well, we're we're trying to get the book done in the first half of the year. Um, it's it's taken a long time because. We're reconstructing the, we're using a lot of DNA tests and different things to reconstruct the genetic heritage of Europe and the United States. Uh, the website is AlleghenyMounds.com and uh, we'll be uploading new information on the site as it comes. And you can also follow me on Facebook. Very good. Okay, well let's keep in touch. And is there a working title for the book? Well, it's not copyrighted yet, so I'm not able to say. But oh, okay. Yes, we do have. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, well, stay in touch on that. That's uh, that's really great. But again, everybody, Jason Jarrell, check him out on Facebook. A tremendous uh, conversation, fascinating subject. Thanks so much, and give our best to your wife, Sarah. 
Thanks for having me. Okay, very good. All right, folks, let's um, get on then to our announcements. There are quite we have a few. much to talk about. Yes, we do. So on April 8th and 9th, we'll once again be speaking at the New England Parafest at the Ashworth by the Sea in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And uh, we are the final speakers of the event. And they have our subject as the truth behind the paranormal, and uh, we'll be talking a great deal about parasites at that point. I'm, I'm going to change that because I don't, I, the truth that sounds kind of arrogant. I mean, it does, we're, yeah. we're, we, our suggestion for what's behind the paranormal. Yes, our opinion. <laughs> yes, our opinion, uh, based on a lot of experience. I guess. Yes. Okay. Uh, then on July 23rd and 24th, that'll be here before people know it. Uh, we'll be at the Connecticut Paranormal Convention. That's a tentative title for it. I think he's changed it. In Windsor Locks, uh, right in the beautiful Connecticut River there. And we will present on Saturday and on Sunday. We will host the weekly edition of this show with a panel of all the speakers before a live audience. Uh, th- this event will be benefit the Queen of Hearts Thoroughbred Retirement Farm in Maine. You know, it's funny. They, they said it was going to benefit homeless shelters. They, they, we have a later found as a homeless shelter for horses. <laughs> you know, they, they need homes too. Hey, so why not? I mean, horses need a home. Uh, in the fall, we'll be speaking in Philadelphia at the UFO uh, conventions in Massachusetts and in uh, New Hampshire as well. And meanwhile, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, one of the top websites in the world for visits and use. Also, at our site, you'll find over uh, 650 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And those two events of this fall, of course, are our usual appearance at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire. It's a wonderful, wonderful, fun event uh, to benefit local charities. There's no charge to get in, and everybody has a great time. And uh, I'm impressed with the PhDs who show up at this thing. Yes. Yes. And then finally, uh, the Lemonster uh, in Lemonster, Mass., the Greater New England UFO Festival, organized by our good friend uh, Susan Spooler. And uh, that's always a lot of fun, too. So anyway, you can find my books at Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, and all the usual suspects. That includes Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And soon, we hope, uh, will be uh, our book. We, we had referred to it as Cosmic Journey Behind the Paranormal, but the publisher has changed it to what essentially our show name is behind the paranormal everything you know is wrong okay which is our show motto they like that better i do too i think actually so does yeah, yeah. Uh, also on our website you'll find direct links to the several charities that ben and i have adopted including usa cares canadian veterans advocacy youth mentoring connection out in los angeles doing great things for young folks out there and also help for haiti a uh, new charity we have adopted uh, there are two uh, books that would be of interest, particularly to our listeners in the local area here. Uh, one is The Bell Witch Project, that has that uh, famous story from the early uh, 19th century, and also a few contributions by uh, myself on historic paranormal cases here in New England. And uh, particular interest here uh, would be UFO Repeaters. That's Global uh, Communications, uh, Timothy Green Beckley's publishing company out of New York City. And UFO Repeaters has an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, uh, who was a talk show host on this station for 50 years. And uh, check that out as well. You can Amazon.com is the best uh, best source for that one. Okay, so. Um, all three books available are there at Amazon.com, and of course the other one is is uh, a recent book, the Spooky uh, Treasure Troves. Yeah, the Spooky Treasure yes. Troves. I swore I'd never have my name on another cover looks like that, but it's <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it, it's a lot of fun. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, next Sunday, February twenty eighth, 
uh, we will bring you an open line show with stacks of questions from listeners on all paranormal subjects. And what before we leave the subject of, of giants, mm-hmm. as I said, I, you know, this is something I take seriously. Everybody, you think giants, everybody thinks fee fi fo fum, you know, and, and you know, Jack and the Beanstalk or something. Well, yeah. There are ancient stories of these things that really were interesting. And I should point out a question I did not ask our guest this evening had to do with a local legend of a giant skeleton in armor dug up in Fall River, Massachusetts. I didn't know about that. When was this? Century, well, I believe it was 1835. I may be wrong. Uh, however, and Fall River, of course, being on the edge of our listening area. Um, I have written a lot under another. my hat as a would-be historian about our area here in southeastern New England, and I have never been able to find out much about that, but it is referred to by the great Danish archaeologist Jan Christian Raffen, who studied New England, oddly enough, even though he's from Denmark, and uh, he said that that actually occurred. Now, many of the, of the things that occurred in those years were not well documented simply because there was no one there to document it yeah uh archaeologists uh, and this goes in into i suppose something of what jason says is the attitude in that science sometimes uh unless uh somebody with a phd is there to record it then it didn't happen or at least it isn't taken seriously yeah yeah so that i think can be a problem as far as knowledge is concerned there are all sorts of amazing findings i'm thinking of particularly in france where a quarries would be delved into the earth to, you know, to, to uh, harvest uh, stones of various kinds, granite or what, what have you, and they would find uh, at, at ridiculously old strata. You know, the farther down you dig, the older what you find will be. Yeah. Okay. And um, they found evidence of a quarry there from strata that would have been uh, up almost a million years old. Wow. So equipment, not exactly like theirs, but somebody was quarrying a million years ago in France. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this is well documented, and uh, there you go. So anyhow, um, next week, uh, open lines, and uh, a little too late for a quote, but I'll just say I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.